This past week, we celebrated um, a birthday in my house. If you were at the Summer Supper and Prayer this week, you know we got to celebrate Wynn's birthday this week. We, we had a big cake that we brought uh, to the Supper and Prayer, and so about 100 people sang Wynn happy birthday, and he thought he was just on top of the world after that happened. But the funniest thing about Wednesday and about Wynn's birthday happened early that morning. You see, we decided to do his birthday, you know, the, the opening of the presents and everything, kind of Christmas style. So whenever he went to bed, Ashley and I set up all the presents and everything. We knew we'd need to do it in the morning. I would have to be gone throughout the day, and we wouldn't have another opportunity. So we set everything up, all of his presents, you know, kind of decorated the kitchen a little bit. And Wynn knew this was happening. So as he went to bed, he could hardly sleep. He was really, really excited. And then early that morning, Wynn comes into our room and wakes us up. Can I open my presents? Can I open my presents? Wynn was just filled with exhilaration and joy and anticipation. What am I going to get? And he could see the presents, but not yet see what was in them. And so we stumble out of the bed and wipe the sleep out of our eyes and go in there. And Wynn begins to devour his presents, ripping paper here and there. And you know how it goes. It's the same scene every Christmas morning. You get it unwrapped, and you see it, and it's like, great. Okay, what's next? You know, you move on to the next one, and you rip that one open. And after all of the excitement and the thrill of opening his presents after he had gotten done, a a despondent look comes over Wynn's face. And he looks at us and says, is that all? Is that all? Is there, surely there's more somewhere. And, uh, you know, I have to admit, our first reaction was not, when is that all? Look at what you have. Be content with this. No, our first reaction was for Ashley and I to look at each other and say, should we have gotten him more? Should we, should we, go, should we take him to Toys R Us today and let him pick out another toy? which opens up a whole other can of worms to go in that place. We've been so deceived by the consumerism of our culture that we believe that to love your children means that you give them all that they want. They have all the toys and things they could ever possibly want. But one of the things that I've come to realize since being a parent is that just about anything I see in my children, I can also see in myself. That's coming from. Just about anything I see in my children, I can also see in myself. Uh, I have the same experience that Wynn was experiencing. I know it very well. But I have it every time I go into a glorious place called Sportsman's Warehouse. Have you ever been to this glorious establishment? You know, it's this huge place up on Lee Highway, this huge warehouse, and it's a sportsman's dream. And I walk into this place, and this place, let me tell you about this place, it's filled with guns. It's filled with boots. It's filled with camouflage. Everything that an outdoorsman could ever dream of, all of the things that you really need to be happy in life, you can find at Sportsman's Warehouse. And every time I come into Sportsman's Warehouse, something happens, even beyond just seeing things that I want. 
it makes me feel a certain way. You know, I kind of come in and all of a sudden I feel like a great hunter. You know, I feel like the consummate outdoorsman. Yeah, this is me. This is what I do. I put food on the table. I go out and I kill game. This is who I am. It makes me feel a certain way. And this glorious place, it's filled with dead animals wall to wall. I mean, there are animals all over the walls. And it's filled with things that you really need. I mean, you really need camouflage underwear. (laughs) Believe it or not, it's extremely helpful, right? And you can imagine why. You really need a cooler that can hold ice in the sun for three months. It's called a Yeti cooler. Adam, Adam will, you know, he'll do a demonstration later and sell you one at the hardware. You really need those kind of things because, you know, how useful could that be? Every time I go in there, I'm filled with desires and with identity and with joy and thinking of all these things that I need. And then I make a purchase and I walk out and sometimes I'm not even to the truck. And I just feel a letdown, kind of like when. Just didn't do it. And even the most exciting purchases, how long is it before we've almost completely forgotten about it? Can you relate to that? The thrill of acquiring stuff, but yet how fading the joy really is? We live in a, we live in a, a culture that is consumed with consumerism. And that kind of experience and that kind of scene, well, it just seems so harmless to us, doesn't it? I mean, it's a, I'm sure the kind of experience we can all relate to, and it just doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But in our passage, Jesus has words for our love of stuff that is very important for us to hear. He's going to show us that Something far more deep is happening in our hearts whenever we have those kind of acquiring kind of experiences. It's about the things that we set our hearts and our affections upon. But Jesus shows us here, calls us to something as a resurrection kind of people. We've been talking throughout this series about, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is showing us the resurrection life. In other words, the kind of life that He came to lead us into through His work. And so the resurrection life is being a community that don't prize and treasure the fleeting things of this world, but rather treasure Christ in His kingdom above all other things. That's what we'll see in our passage. Jesus, to do this, Jesus shows us three different images, three different metaphors He uses here. One is treasure, one is the eye, and another is a master. Essentially, He's asking three questions. Where's your treasure? What is your heart fixed on? And who is your master? It's what we'll see in the passage here. So let's jump in and we notice in verse 19 that Jesus says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Do not accumulate and store up for yourself treasures on earth. Now a treasure just very simply, is things that we come to place ultimate value on. 
That's what a treasure is. It can be just almost anything. It can be material things. It can be money itself. It can be the things that wealth brings. It can be a relationship, a person, children, a home. It can even be things like success and reputation. All of these things we can make our treasure because we assign ultimate value to them and we hoard them and we accumulate them. But in particular, Jesus wants to point out the danger of the treasures of this earth that so easily our hearts become attached to. You know, I think this might be one of the most important things that Jesus can show us throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Because, one, of the culture that we live in, and number two, because of the deceitfulness of such things. So first, the culture that we live in. We live in a culture that is absolutely consumed with consuming. I mean, it is just fundamentally American to acquire things. What other culture in the whole world would have five different shows about people who bury themselves in their homes with stuff? You've seen hoarders, right? Buried alive. There's like five different kinds of shows on this. So why do we have so many of those? Where else would that happen? And of course, we watch these shows, and it kind of makes us feel less like hoarders ourselves. We watch them, we say, oh my goodness, what's wrong with these people? And then you go to move, right? And you realize, oh, I'm a hoarder. Like, seriously. You know, it takes me three weeks to pack my stuff up, and I can't let go of anything. You know, anytime you move, you actually get introduced to just how attached to stuff you really are. But there's also this element of our culture, not only that we accumulate, but it's in the value that we assign to things. It's the hopes that we put into them. In our consumeristic culture, we're constantly bombarded by the marketing machine. It's carefully done, constantly bombarding us with certain truths, with certain visions about the world. You see, at the core of consumerism is this belief. I will find happiness and completeness and joy through consuming products. It's at the heart of it. It's the basis of our whole economy. Consider this. 50 years ago in advertising, advertising would try to show you how a particular product would help you do what you needed to do. It would improve the way that you go about what you had to do. Today, Almost all marketing is surrounded around offering you a certain kind of identity. In other words, you see an advertisement. You see a product. It's a beautiful person who's extremely successful, who's got everything going for him, and you see him in the message of this. You are not them. But you can be like them if you purchase this product. You know how it is. If you have a certain kind of mustard... We are in a certain class of people, you know, grape upon. You know, if you drive a certain kind of car, then you're a certain kind of person. If you have a certain brand of computer, you're hip. Remember those Apple commercials? You know, with the nerdy Dell guy and the real cool, hip Mac guy? What's it telling you? This product will make you cool and hip. You see, that's the underlying message behind the constant bombardment of advertising that we receive. Stuff will give you identity. 
Stuff will change you into someone else. Stuff will make you happy. It will fulfill you. In our culture, we're constantly bombarded by it. But there's another reason why what Jesus says is so helpful, so very important for us. And it's the deception that is inherent with greed and with stuff. Jesus talks about money more than almost any other thing. Does that surprise you? He talks about it constantly. One of the things that he says about money is he says, be careful, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Why would he say that? If it were not for the fact that he knows how deceptive stuff can be in our life. Tim Keller writes that in over 30 years of pastoral ministry, he has had people come to him and confess almost every kind of sin that you can imagine. But he cannot remember a time of someone coming to him and saying, I think I might be greedy. I think that my attachment to stuff might be harming my family and my relationship with God. He says, it's just not going to happen. Because here's the nature of greed and what sets it apart from all other sins. It blinds its victim to itself. It's deceptive by nature. Compare it to other things Jesus might talk about. For instance, adultery. You know, with adultery, there's no danger of like not knowing you're doing it, right? I mean, who would in the moment say, wait a minute, you're not my wife. How did I get here? Right? But with greed, that very dynamic is at work. You easily begin to reason, who doesn't need a little more house? We're a little cramped in here. Who doesn't need a car that can parallel park itself? I mean, come on. It's deceptive by nature. And another reality of it is that any time you step into a new class, you're not comparing yourself to those below you. You're always comparing yourself to your peers and those above you. So it is possible that no matter what you make, no matter how much you have, that you can very easily look at plenty of people in your life who have more than you. And because of that practice in our hearts, we never, ever think we're greedy. We always see the people around us who have more. In fact, consistently in research... Only 2% of our nation actually consider themselves upper class. Everyone else says, well, yeah, I'm just middle class. So the middle class is like enormous. It's because no one sees themselves as rich. And because of that, Jesus says, be warned because it's dangerous. It'll take your heart and squeeze out God and you'll never know it's even happening. Considering the deceptiveness of of wealth, considering the culture that we live in, we ought to just assume this could easily be a problem for me. It ought to just be an assumption for every one of us. And here's what Jesus is saying about it here. It's almost a point of wisdom. It's just not smart to treasure stuff. That's what Jesus is saying. You see, because all of these things that you're running after that you must have, they wear out. They break. They fade. That, that new car just loses that new car smell after a year. You know, the things that you have, you lose them. People steal them. Things 
decay them. They wear out and ultimately you leave it behind. See, Jesus is at this point just making a, a true statement about it. It's just not wise. It's temporary. But then he moves on in the next verse to point us to a different kind of treasure. He says in verse 20, But store up for yourself treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus says, this is a far better investment with the values and affections of your heart. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Because the thing about them, they never wear out. In fact, they grow. In fact, you're going to enjoy them for all of eternity. So what does he mean by treasures in heaven? What's he referring to? Well, first and foremost, he's talking about God himself. Treasuring God for who he is. Realizing that one day we will enjoy him face to face forever. But it's also treasuring things like his kingdom, his glory. It's also matters of the character. You know, it's coming to treasure things like love and relationships and generosity and obedience and expanding his kingdom and God's glory. You see, investing in those things, making those things what your heart treasures, what Jesus says, just the way to go. I mean, they're going to last forever. But then in verse 21, he makes another statement. This is kind of a, just a true statement. He's not necessarily saying anything that we should do or whatever. He's just saying, listen, this is just kind of a a principle of life. This is just always how it works. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is saying, whatever you make your treasure, and this is true no matter what, whatever you make your treasure, that's what your heart will chase after. Whatever you place ultimate value on in your life, that's where your heart will be. Now, the heart in Scripture refers to the totality of who we are. It's our thoughts, our affections, our emotions, our choices. That's what the heart is. So Jesus is saying, whatever you make your treasure, your life will begin to center around that. He doesn't have to say, center your life around this. No, he knows that if you get the treasure right, then it will affect and change your whole life. Just a test. You can look at the life. You can look at the heart and know right off what someone's treasure is. So the first image he shows us is treasure. And the ultimate question he's asking is, where is your treasure? But then he gives us another image here, and it's that of the eye. Now, at first glance, these couple verses are hard to understand exactly what he's saying here. The eye is the lamp of the body. If the eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness... How great is that darkness? So he's using a metaphor here, an image. He's talking about the eye, and he's comparing it to a lamp. You know, you take a lamp, you would put a lamp in a dark room, and if the lamp is functioning right, if it's good, if it's doing what it's supposed to do, it'll give light to the whole room, right? Well, here he's saying that the eye is like that with the body. But he's not referring to the physical eye. He's referring to the eye of the spirit or the heart. Over and over in Scripture, matters of the heart are described as what you fix your eyes upon. So, Scripture often uses them interchangeably, and the eye 
Well, your eye is on is oftentimes used to describe what your heart is on. So essentially what Jesus is saying here is, what are you fixing your heart upon? So if you're fixing your heart upon the things of this world, well then, that light that is supposed to be shining in your light, instead it will bring darkness. It will distort everything. But if on the other hand, you fix your heart upon Christ and His kingdom and treasures in heaven, well then it, it fills your life with light. You perceive things clearly. Jesus is saying, what is your heart fixed upon? So that's treasure, and then there's an eye, but then there's a third image that he uses, and it's that of a master. Look at verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. Jesus, again, he's oftentimes saying these statements that are just true. I mean, and sometimes just kind of obvious. Think about that for a minute. It's a little self-evident. You cannot serve two masters. You see, because the nature of a master is a master owns you. A master rules over you. You serve a master. So by the very definition of a master, you can't have two. Because if you got two, well then, one is not fully the master. And so Jesus is making that point. If you've got two masters, you're going to end up loving one and despising the other. And it's without fail. Because masters demand allegiance. And then Jesus sums it up with this. You cannot serve both God and money. There's an assumption that Jesus has behind his statement here. And that is, everyone is serving something. You see, we tend to think in our world especially that we're free. We tend to think that I'm my own captain. I decide my own way. I have rights. I have things that I can do and no one can infringe upon them. I serve no one. It's kind of the cry of humanity ever since the garden. But Jesus says, that's just not true. You're in deception. Everyone will serve something. It's how we've been created. It's how we were made. We were made to serve God in His world. But right there at the very beginning of everything, we came under the slavery of sin and all of its implications. And so everyone is serving something. Jesus is essentially saying, whom will you serve? We think we're free. We think we're autonomous. But who are we kidding? Look at our debt. Look at how advertisers play us like a fiddle. We're not free. The question is, who will you serve? And Jesus says here, you can't serve both God and money. I'll summarize here. Now, the the word translated money there is actually mammon. It was an ancient word for a, a money god. So it refers to, yes, money, absolutely, but even more broadly, all that it would bring, things, treasures. And Jesus says, your heart's not big enough for both of them. One is going to rule. And here's the nature about trying to serve both, because we try to do that constantly. That's like the anthem of the Christian church. I want to serve God and serve money at the same time. And Jesus is saying, it's just impossible. One's got to get out. And you know who often gets out? It's the nature of the deceitfulness of riches. 
Jesus talked about it in the parable of the sower. Remember, he's sowing the seeds all around. And one seed fell among thorns. And now the thorns, he goes on to explain, well, it was the deceitfulness of riches, the worries of this life. And as it begins to take root and grow, it gets choked out. If you try to serve God and money, guess who gets choked out? You will serve money. So in all three of these images, in treasure, in the eye, in the master, Jesus is essentially talking about what controls the affections of your heart. What is at the center of who you are? What is on the throne of your life? What is your greatest value? That's what he means by what's your treasure, what's your heart fixed on, and who is your master? And he's pointing to how easily our hearts become attached to things of this earth. They're sticky. We so easily get attached to them. This is what the Bible calls idolatry. Anytime we begin to look to created things, no matter what it might be, for ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment and life and security and hope, that is what Scripture calls an idol. An idol is a God substitute. It's not just a a figurine or a statue that someone might bow down to. It can be absolutely anything. Anything that becomes the object of your trust, of your love, of your security and your hopes. That is an idol. That is what we begin to give ultimate allegiance to. And see, here's the tricky thing about idols. They're often good things. Jesus is not here saying that money in and of itself is evil. Stuff in and of itself is evil. There's nothing wrong with houses. There's nothing wrong with toys. There's nothing wrong with with people and with success and reputation and all of those things. They're good parts of God's creation. Here's the danger is to love those things. That's what Jesus says. It's not money. It's the love of money. And the point that he's making is, Because our hearts are bent on idolatry, we're constantly running after other things. We're constantly putting things in the place of God in our heart. So let's try to drive this home for a minute. What is your treasure? Where is your treasure in your life? I would imagine most of us this morning would want to say, well, it's God and it's his kingdom. I mean, look. For crying out loud, we're in church, right? Could be so many other places. But here's a a very helpful point that Jesus made earlier in the passage. He said, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So your life will actually reveal where your real treasure is. The actions, the things that you chase after, it doesn't lie. It reveals it. So begin to ask yourself questions like this. Where do my thoughts go? in those idle times? What captures my imagination on a continual basis? What do I daydream about? What am I after in all of my research? You know how the hours just melt away on Pinterest or, or uh, for me especially, Pinterest. Realtor.com. You know, those things that we go to that somehow just send, tend to to lift the sadness, to bring a little hope, to bring a little joy as we begin to anticipate a life out there that might get a little bit better, 
a house that might be a little bit bigger. Stuff I might one day get. Or what about your money? Where does your money go? If you really want to know where someone's value is, look at their bank statement. There's just no hiding it. I mean, it's just plain and simple right there because your money will flow to where your treasure is. It reveals your value every single time. Where's your time spent? Where do you put your attention and your focus? Or even this, what do you worry about most? What are you most anxious about? You see, it reveals what I must have because we're afraid of losing it. Right? In, that, in that regard, we look to these things to provide for us. We serve them. See, the problem with all of these things, the problem with idolatry, is not just that you've broken a rule, but rather that we have broken God's heart. You see, here's the reality. God desires the fullness of our hearts. He wants us, our affections, He wants himself to be the one that we are running to for satisfaction, for fulfillment, for comfort, for security. He is the one who wants to provide that. He is jealous for our affections. Throughout the scriptures, the most common way that he describes his relationship with his people is that of a marriage. You know what he calls idolatry throughout the scriptures? Adultery. Adultery that breaks his And so ultimately, you got to see that. That it's not just we're getting tangled up in stuff. It's that we are giving the affections that belong to him to all of these other things in our life. As John Calvin said, and as you begin to think about this and ask yourself these questions, you begin to see our hearts are idol-making factories. So what do we do? What do you do whenever you begin to notice your heart is eaten up with so many God substitutes? Well, the solution is not to focus on getting rid of the idols. Eric mentioned that a few weeks ago. Just to focus on them, I'm, I'm going to get rid of this, I'm going to stop it. Just won't work. You've got to displace them with something that is far more satisfying and fulfilling. You know this reality with children. Have you ever seen a child who's grasping onto something that they won't let go of, you want to get away from them? What is the easiest way to get that from a child? Show them something they want more, right? I mean, happens every time. My kids have got something they won't let go of. I pull out something that candy, candy bar, another toy, something that is more enticing, more satisfying. And what do they do with what they're holding? They just drop it. You've got to displace your idols with something far more satisfying and beautiful and enticing. You see, in the gospel, God is holding out to us himself in the person of Jesus Christ. God is saying to us in the gospel, this is what I'm like. I know everything about you, and here's what I did. I left the glories and the comforts of heaven, and I entered into the brokenness of your world so that you might be mine. In the gospel, God is saying, this is what I'm like. The Apostle Paul sums up the gospel this way, in economic terms, profound way. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. See, Paul is just summarizing the gospel in these economic terms and saying Christ was rich beyond imagination. The entire universe belonged to him. All of the glories and the wonders of heaven were his forever, for all of eternity. Yet for you, for people like us who are totally and utterly spiritual bankrupt to a level we don't even fathom, he became poor. He left all of the glory, all of the riches to enter into the brokenness of our world, to live as a man. Throughout his life, Jesus was born to a nobody people in a nobody place. Throughout his life, he never had two nickels to rub together. And then at the end of his life, the ultimate poverty of a shameful cross. Paul says, he became poor so that we might become rich. Paul says, if you're in union with Christ, you are rich more than you can ever fathom. Union with Christ, the indwelling of His Spirit, all of the affections of heaven are upon you in spite of who you are, and the future inheritance of all things, reigning with Him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Paul says, do you see how rich you are? The Apostle Peter says, we are now His treasured possession." We're his treasure. You get that? You see, if you do get that, your idols will lose their luster to you. See, what we've got to do is we have got to focus ourselves on the wonders of who Christ is, of all that he's done, all that he's doing, all that he will do, so that that becomes more real and more enticing than the fleeting pleasures of this earth. It is the only way we will be free. Advertisers are clever, aren't they? Always holding out for us this vision of the good life. And it is so hard to resist it and to believe in a counter-reality. But that is just what Jesus calls his people to do. He says, seek first my kingdom, my righteousness, and me, and all things will be yours. It's a completely counter-message to everything that surrounds us. You see, we are called to be a people that take Him at His word and say, I will treasure you above the things of this earth so that we might be a city set on a hill in a dark world. Let's pray.